Hello, I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. And welcome to the seventh episode of Tudoriferous, the fortnightly biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, I can't remember his name. John Cabot. John Cabot. I can't remember his name. <laughs> hey, you didn't even remember John, what was it, John DeLapola at the end of it, the whole thing, and then you get to the end and you're like, I can't remember his name. We just talked about him for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we were going to say a few thank yous, weren't we? Yes, we definitely so perhaps are. First, first, we should say thank you to Rex Factor for um, inventing this ridiculous format that we've all been sucked <laughs> into. <laughs> It's obviously highly entertaining, or there wouldn't be so many uh, copycats. Yes. <laughs> and then Steve, we need to we need to recognise Steve. Thank you, Steve. He's our um, resident aggressive Cockney that does our voiceovers. <laughs> and then your husband. Yeah, Rob. He does the music. He's doing it now downstairs. So um, as we speak. So uh, yeah, thanks to all of them. Thank you, thank you. And, and then, then the quiz. Oh. Quiz. The, the dreaded quiz. <laughs> it really is. Right, uh, Arthur. Arthur. Yes, right, I can Arthur. That bit. Okay, the Arthur quiz. I'm gonna, I actually tried to keep this a little easier because we've been getting pretty hard on each other. So <laughs> it is, because I mean, it's, it, it's quite a long gap. Two yes. weeks is quite a long gap. So, where did the king, the queen, and the queen mother go to ensure Arthur was born in the fabled Camelot? Well, they went to Winchester. Yes. Right. Do you happen to remember what it was called before it got the name change? Yes. It was what Winchester Cathedral was called St. Swithin's Priory. Perfect. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I remember that because it was, um, he's the 40 days and 40 nights Rain man. I don't know if you have that in Canada. If it rains on St. Swithin's Day, it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Oh, no. We've just got mm. groundhogs that if they come up and they look and they see their shadow and they dive back in, it's winter, which never makes sense to me. Because, I mean, if he sees his shadow, the sun's out. It should be spring now. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally backwards. And we have several, depending on which province you're in. Each one has a different named groundhog. <laughs> I didn't know the groundhogs were actually a real thing. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're, they're actually quite adorable. I'm a weirdo. I like the rodents. They're adorable. They're uh, uh, kind of like a rabbit size, so they can get quite big, but they handle their food much more like a squirrel, so you see them moving things around uh, and carrying things and stealing your vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Number two. Mm -hmm. What is the only title he was born with? He was born with... Corn... Uh, Cornwall. Yeah, the Duke of Cornwall. That's the only one. Everything else he had to be invested with. Speaking of oh, which... Doing well so far. Mm -hmm. At what <laughs> age was he made to attend the ceremonies of investiture and the Night of the Bath? Was he three? Yeah. Yeah, because I was imagining them all... Sitting in the bath, all these all these grown men and this tiny little boy all sitting in the bath being lectured by the king. I thought, what a bizarre image. Yeah, and then his itty bitty coronet, his itty bitty ring, and the little tiny sword that he gets gifted. <laughs> okay, next one. This is definitely an easy one. What uh -huh. instrument did he play? 
He well, he didn't play the oud. We know that he played the lute. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Final mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. How old was he when he married Catherine? I think he was fourteen. Yes. Yay! One hundred percent. Well done. <laughs> ah, they must be easier. <laughs> No, no, because we were just humiliating ourselves before. (laughs) (laughs) I listened back to them, a couple of them on our episodes. I was like, ooh, that was mean. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Oh, that was stupid. I mean, Warwick. Because when I I listened back to to the episode and I thought all the way through it was saying it was the Duke (laughs) of York. (laughs) And then comes the question and I think, ooh, Warwick? (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, well. Well done. Mm. First 100%. Possibly the last. (laughs) Quite possibly. Incident, before we start, I found an interesting little snippet to do with the um, Edward Plantagenet thing. It popped up on my inbox today because I get sent sent things from a university um, because I ask them for things about John Dee and they send me all sorts of things about magic and alchemy and things. Right. And for some reason, I got this today. This is from... It was a paper written by Gerald Livings, and he's doing independent research into aglets. Do you remember they're the yeah they're the plas- bits plastic the things on yeah. of your shoelaces? Yes. Yeah, and his latest paper is called "A Possible Example of Pliers Being Used for the Manufacture of Aglets During the Late Middle Ages." Really? And it's, ma- it's mainly about the shape, you know, tapering or non-tapering, whether it's got one seam or two seams. And it finished with the phrase that further research is planned on aglets. <laughs> <laughs> but I did like the fact, I do like people who home in on something tiny and stick with it. And sometimes they end up with the most interesting information possible. No, we got, we got completely hung up on buttons the first episode. Didn't we? <laughs> yes, we did. And then, oh my goodness, I made the mistake of getting into dyes. Mm-hmm. And... You're sitting there wondering, like, who in the world thought up the process of this? Because, I mean, royal purple is done by taking a specific shellfish, letting it rot and ferment for months on end, then pounding it to a pulp and adding in a bunch of other noxious chemicals. And you end up with this really gorgeous purple. But who would find that out? No, I have no idea. Like, what were you just throwing everything into a dish outside, and then eventually you went, "Huh, it's purple. What did I throw in there?" Yeah, I mean that's how alchemy sort of works. I think. Yeah, I just just tried everything. And then you've got woad. Woad is only activated by urine. Yes. Everything's activated by stale urine, apparently. I but did, I, did, I did love their urine. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, I guess we should get on with this. <laughs> yeah, we've been wittering on for 10 minutes and we haven't even mentioned his name. Enough quizzing already. Let's get on with it. Okay, so this episode, John Cabot. Right, first of all, this is just to say, this is a beheading-free episode. Ooh, nobody dies. Don't think one might die, but they're not beheaded. And I don't think we'll necessarily get many of those. And also, unless you shoehorn her in somewhere, there should be a Margaret Beaufort free episode as well. Really? But that's, that's not a challenge. Okay. <laughs> you know, when we started this, and honestly, I pulled Margaret, and I was a little disappointed. <laughs> I was like, 
oh my gosh, this is just going to be some woman that I'm reading about how many times a day she's going to church and how much she prays and all this kind of stuff. And they got to her and was like, Huh. <laughs> I had it completely it, it certainly wrong. picked up once we discovered she was a compulsive gambler. I mean, that oh was great. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll pay you to go on this so I can yeah. keep gambling, please. Can somebody bring me more wine? <laughs> okay, sorry, continue. Right, John Cabot. Remember him? Right, <laughs> come with me, if you will, to a tavern in Seville. It even rhymes. Ooh. A man is regaling anyone who will listen with stories of his voyages. He tells them how he led expeditions across the great sea to places unknown and unvisited by civilised men. How the merchants of Bristol looked to him to show them where the the great fish stocks were and so cut out the Icelandic fish traders from the deal. And how not only did he find fish in an abundance unheard of elsewhere, but he found the passage to Cathay, the land of the great Khan, the land of unimaginable riches, and how he brought back the news to a grateful king who showered him with praise and wealth. And the name of this man? The name of the man was Cabot. Sebastian Cabot. What? No, that's a a (laughs) twist. (laughs) Right, we have to get one thing straight, and it's quite a big thing. John Cabot did not discover Newfoundland. Really? It was discovered, if that's the word, initially by hunters crossing the Bering Land Bridge in pursuit of game around 35,000 years ago. Then tribes, now described as the Red Paint People, arrived in in the Labrador area around 4,000 years ago, and they hung around until 1200 BC. 800 years later, people known as the Dorset Eskimo arrived from Greenland and were there until 750 BC. But whether they were resident or whether they used it as a seal hunting ground, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this either. The Boathook Indians? were the next to move in, and they were officially... This is, this is a bit sad. They were officially declared extinct in 1829. Oh. In the 5th century, an Irish monk called St Brendan sailed in a boat made of oxhide with the aim of spreading Christianity. Wait, 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 wait. Where did the Vikings come? Uh, hold your horses. LAUGHTER a lovely painting shows all the all the monks crammed into what looks like a tiny little coracle with no room for even to sit down. You know, these medieval ones like to, mm-hmm. like to cram people in. He arrived to find the ground golden and green with many precious stones and the most beautiful building with walls of gold and columns of carbuncle. The roof was of peacock feathers and a fountain flowed rivers of milk and honey, wine and oil. Which sounds lovely, if a tad unlikely. But... A tad? <laughs> <laughs> milk and honey wine and oil sounds a bit too much like a biblical trope mm-hmm. and, and who the hell makes roofs out of feathers i mean that's just a stupid idea and i gotta ask what is a carbuncle because to me a carbuncle is yeah it's like a bunion isn't it no yeah. it's um it's a semi-precious stone it doesn't oh, sound very nice okay. doesn't it no no it really doesn't i'm picturing something quite disgusting <laughs> anyway in the year 1001 AD, Leif Erikson set sail. Here comes your Vikings. Mm. <laughs> they spent an uneventful winter in Newfoundland, which he called Finland or Wineland. And there was some attempt to colonise the area, but the natives were having none of it. But they still sailed back there from time to time for the purpose of getting timber, which was very scarce on Greenland and Iceland. And then a joint Portuguese-Danish expedition reached Newfoundland in 1476. And they called it Terra do Bacalao, 
and apologies to Portuguese people, or cod country. But I couldn't find out why they didn't follow up this discovery. I can only assume that there was so much excitement about the discoveries further south that it wasn't thought to be quite as sexy up north. Maybe they but, went uh, there during the winter when they're having a rough snowstorm <laughs> yes. and nobody would want to be there. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I love that area of Canada. It's beautiful. Yeah, I was looking at photos of it. It does look gorgeous. Oh, it is. Um, yeah. yeah, this is the weird one. Bristol mariners had launched into the Atlantic west of Ireland searching for the fabled Isle of Brazil or the Isle of Seven Cities, governed supposedly by descendants of the Spanish who had fled the Moors. It was meant to be where Brazil wood grew, the shavings of which make a rich red dye. And incidentally, a tree similar to Brazil wood was found by the Portuguese in the Amazon basin. And although it wasn't actually Brazil wood, they still named the region after it. So Brazil gets its name from the misidentification of a tree. Oh, so anyway, that's all the people that got there first. There is one person uh. that you might have missed out. And I say might because there's still quite an argument about it. Some people believe that the Chinese arrived here before the Vikings, but we have no actual proof. There is suggestions, and satellite images have shown outlines of settlements that would follow a Chinese style of settlement, but there's been no actual proof that they did arrive here first. Yeah, it's always a bit dodgy for doing that, isn't it? Because people mm. say about... Um... The Mayans and the Incas and how much their architecture looks like Egyptian architecture and was there links between them? You think, well, probably not. And already, everybody always seems to completely miss the Olmecs, which were before the mm. Incans and the Mayans, and their architecture apparently would have gone back farther than Egyptian. Some people would say, other people argue the opposite. So. Yeah. <laughs> I know, it's, it seems a bit too much of a can of worms, I think, the Chinese aspect. But... Yeah, but at least we've winking a nod to them. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's meet the man who didn't discover Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> John Cabot was born in Genoa in around 1450, as was Columbus. And I read that they may even have been childhood friends, but that, to me, smacks a little too much of, wouldn't it be nice if they'd been childhood friends? You know, sort of nice and neat... Are they exactly the same age? Yeah, I think they're born in the oh. same year. So, yeah. you know. Anyway, his father was a merchant. The family moved to Venice when John was 10, and he was granted citizenship there when he was 25, which seemed quite a long time to me, so I looked it up. And 15 years of continuous residency was apparently the norm before you could apply for Venetian citizenship. Isn't that funny? I didn't even think there was citizenship at that time. I don't know why, because the Romans had it, so why not no. afterwards? But it's not something you'd think about. Like, did you get yeah. a passport then? I don't know about Venice, but I know in England you weren't meant to travel if you hadn't had permission. And that was a sort of passport, I suppose, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Right, he was married in 1480 to a Venetian woman called Matea. And they had three sons, Sebastian, Sancius, or Sanctus, and, as he he's, he's described in one book I read, Louis which doesn't sound very Venetian, but maybe that was the name he was known by when they reached England. Because another book called him Ludovico, which makes a bit more, more Italian. Yeah. yeah. But they yeah. did come to England, so perhaps, you know, people changed the name. Although I noticed that, because I've just been reading Francis Bacon's The History of the Reign of Henry VII, which is a really good book, I recommend it. And he calls Louis XI, you know, the spider, he calls him Louis. Oh. So, yeah. Maybe they just anglicised everything mm. when you got to England at that time? Mm, maybe. 
Well, he's John. He's John Cabot. So, I mean, he yes. wasn't John. Yeah. Okay. During these years, Cabot worked as a geographer, a merchant, and an estate agent. And he went to Africa and the Middle East, and it was in Mecca that he encountered the spice caravans. And he asked them where they got their spices from and was told that another spice caravan dropped it off at their village and they brought it on to Mecca. So he said, well, where, where did the other spice caravan get them? Well, the other spice caravan brings it to their village and yet another spice caravan brings it to their village. So Cal Cabot calculated that if all these caravans were bringing spices in relay over such a huge distance around the world, then surely if you had to go in the other direction, then the distance wouldn't be so very great at all. Stands to reason. Oh, <laughs> I see. Shortcut. Across terrain and waters that nobody's ever seen. <laughs> but now we're, so, you know, it was funny because we were talking about that Arthur episode about the ostrich feathers and he's gone to Africa. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they just, there's so much travel. It just seems unbelievable. For how long it took. Yeah. The length and the, and the danger. Yeah. Yeah. What Cabot didn't know, and in his defence neither did anyone else, was that the general consensus about the size of the Earth was out by about 7,000 miles. And not only was the world a lot bigger than they'd thought, but Cabot's longed-for passage to Cathay, which is where he wants to go, was blocked by the whole American continent. And there's going to be no way through, and there wouldn't be until August the 15th, 1914. Where is Cathay? Uh, China. Thank you. The, the old name for China. Yeah, and he couldn't really wait till 1914, so uh, no. that's when the op opening of the Panama Canal. When the did the Suez Canal open oh, up? Oh, don't confuse it? me now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> so that's what Google's for. You can do that, do that in your own good time. <laughs> <laughs> right, the family had moved to Valencia by this point. Um, this, is, this is him, his wife, and the three kids, the three boys. I don't know if there are any girls, they're not mentioned. Uh, he seemed to have been perpetually short of money and may have moved from Venice to escape his creditors. He wrote to King Ferdinand of Spain suggesting that Valencia could do with a port. He seems a bit pushy for someone who's just moved to the, moved to the town. Mm. Go straight <laughs> right, to you, the king. What you need people is a port. He met the king on several occasions and showed him the plans, but Ferdinand contacted the Governor-General of Valencia, Juan Diego de Torre, who replied that unless Cabot could himself stump up the cash for the project, then Torre didn't really see that it was going to be a goer. Cabot didn't have that sort of money. It might just be a slap in the hand for, you know, going above the chain of command. You should yes. talk to me about this, not the king. <laughs> but it does show he must have been a man of reasonable standing for the king to have listened to him in the first place. Uh, yes. His knowledge of port construction may have come from house building in Venice, where they obviously had to build into seawater. Oh, right. Now, the year that Cabot was battling to get his port built was 1492, which I believe was famous for something else momentous. Oh, I couldn't imagine what it was no. for. And it had well, nothing I know. to do it... with his possible childhood friend. No, I was thinking actually of the death of John de la Pole Senior. Actually, he died in 1492. <laughs> <laughs> but Columbus had just returned announcing that he'd found islands off the coast of Asia and had seen the mainland of Cathay. Liar. <laughs> <laughs> In April, they were all liars. They everybody, all really were. Everybody in Tudor times lies their teeth out. In, that's not a phrase. In April 1493, Columbus passed through Valencia. 
if they had been childhood friends, it would have been strange if he hadn't popped in for a chat with Cabot. But again, it's one of these, oh, wouldn't it be nice facts? Yeah. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this is all well and good, but what does it have to do with the Tudors? This is all well and good, but what does this have to do with the Tudors? I'll tell you. <laughs> Cabot was very keen to prove to someone that his theory that the passage to Cathay was via the northwest Atlantic, not down south. But the rulers of the European mainland were stuck in a rut in their thinking about this, were stuck in a couple of ruts. The Spanish were very reluctant to admit that Columbus had not already found Cathay, although even by this point it was, it was looking a bit dodgy. <laughs> and Portugal was convinced that the route lay around Africa. So who could Cabot talk to? Whose kingdom was situated further north than Spain and Portugal? And which country already had links to Iceland and therefore some knowledge of northern routes? And when Cabot had visited the royal courts of Lisbon and Seville, he had met some English merchants from Bristol who were very interested in Cabot's North Atlantic proposal. In fact, they'd already had thoughts on the same line and were looking out for an experienced sailor stroke adrenaline junkie who to uh, undertake the voyage. For how many people did not make it through those voyages, you must have had some sort of adrenaline requirement. Yes. I mean, you're just heading out. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You can't imagine it. Just just pointing in the right direction and going for it. And there's definitely no guarantee you're returning. No. And who knows if there'll be anything out there. I mean, you just know, <laughs> there's no way of telling. Henry VII had expressed interest in the enterprise, but being Henry, of course, he just held out his empty pockets and shrugged. But Cabot seems to have come to Bristol in 1494 to 5, and those Bristol merchants had already made an unsuccessful attempt to follow in the watery footsteps of the Vikings. Although, as we heard earlier, I'm contradicting myself, apparently they landed in uh, Labrador, so I don't know. Various sources say various things, as we will find out all the way through this. <laughs> it is extremely fragmentary. Oh, there was an episode on Saga Thing where they talked about the Vikings in Newfoundland or Labrador. Mm. remember which episode it was one of their special episodes it wasn't uh yes there was somebody who lives lives there Mm -hmm. a lady but i don't remember her name either oh this is helpful loretta her (laughs) name was loretta i don't know where i've dragged that from yes uh oh here we are it says in 1492 they seem to have landed on the labrador coast 115 days before columbus landed in 1493, they sighted Newfoundland and discovered Cape Breton, which implies that these anonymous Bristol merchants had already done most of the heavy lifting. I mean, what was going to make Cabot stand out from them? And why is there a statue of Cabot wearing what looks like a dressing gown, standing on a plinth looking out across the sea at Cape Bonavista, instead of all these forgotten Bristol men? I must stop tapping my foot. I noticed it comes, comes out on the microphone. <laughs> Bristol was second only to London as the wealthiest trading centre in England. And now, here's a little gem of a fact. And if I'd read this on April Fool's Day, I'm not sure I'd have believed it, but I found it in several sources. Bristol traded heavily in woven cloth of all kinds, but particularly blankets. And indeed, the blanket was invented, if you can invent a blanket, at this time by the blanket family. That's Mr. and Mrs. Blanket and all the little blankets. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Mm. Blankets were invented. Yeah. All the little blankets. <laughs> the merchant, the British, uh, British, the Bristol merchants owed much of their prosperity to the links with Henry the Seventh. He granted them exemption from certain dues and fees on condition that they shared their profit with the crown. Okay. 
Incidentally, one of Cabot's backers was called Richard Americay, and it's thought mainly, if not exclusively, in Bristol, that it is him and not that upstart Amerigo Vespucci who is the source of the name of America. So Captain America may have been a Bristolian. (laughs) (laughs) However, this has been rejected by most people. (laughs) He, like many people of the time, spelt his name in various ways, including Apmeric, to reflect his Welsh origins, and sometimes Merrick, M-E-R-R-I-C-K, you know, like Elephant Man. But apparently he's a gloriously corrupt person. <laughs> but why would America be named after corrupt West Country tax man? It does seem very unlikely. Not after the history of the golden era. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm listening to Totalis Rankium American presidents and they're talking about how corrupt it is during the golden <laughs> age. So it sort of yeah. slots right in right there. Yeah, but maybe the corruption was the attraction, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, Henry VII's policy towards voyages of discovery changed when he heard about Columbus's journey, because Columbus had already approached Henry with his plan for his voyage, but Henry was preoccupied with other matters. Oh, I didn't know that. Not to mention, no, I didn't realise that at the time, not to mention that he was short of money. But now he had to watch Ferdinand and Isabella basking in Columbus's glory. This is nine years before the marriage of Catherine of Aragon and Arthur, but to put it into context. So now Henry's quite li- quite uh, ready to listen to Cabot's plans. Because England is at the end of a passage of goods from the Far East, and so they had to pay the most inflated prices. And the Bristol merchants stressed the economic benefits, how they could gain a mon- monopoly on the spice trade, and how, obviously, the Crown would get a cut. Uh, so they obviously knew which buttons to press with Henry. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, Cabot was employed to negotiate trade treaties with Denmark and Norway regarding trade with Iceland, and he was also employed by the Bristol merchants to hunt out the place where the Icelandic fishermen were finding all that cod, because it had become imperative that England find the stocks themselves because of a combination of outside interference, I think that was the Hanseatic League, and the fact that English sailors had been doing what all young young English people do when they travel abroad, brawling in pubs, and so the English... (laughs) weren't welcome in Icelandic ports anymore. But Cabot seems to have used this as a bargaining chip. You know, I'll find you fish if you support my plan to find Cathay. You would think that the last thing they'd have problems with is fish. I mean, they're sur- you're surrounded by water. The, I know the um, the stocks off Newfoundland are phenomenal, aren't they? I, mean, they're... I don't know if they still are. No, they're not now, but sadly not. Yeah, he describes it later, and it does seem, you know, you can hardly move your ship through them, <laughs> so many. Um, yeah, he convinced the, merch- the British merchant that the two things were linked, the um, finding fish and finding China. The Vikings had discovered Vinland, which Cabot said was the northern coast of Cathay, so this was how the Icelanders had discovered this route, and were following it to find those fish stocks. So if England could find the stocks, they could cut them out of the equation. But it did occur to me, what else have the Icelanders got to trade? I mean, furs, possibly. But it has mainly to be fish, so cutting them out of the trade would be condemning the island to starvation. Yeah, anyway, all's fair in love and war and fish. What did they have to trade in Iceland? Did they still have the sheep at that time? I don't know. I would have thought mainly furs, but I don't know. But not... Not fish, if the English get their mitts on them. Anyway, Cabot was convinced that if he followed the Viking route to Vinland and then coasted south, he'd inevitably find the passage to China and Japan. Obviously. Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not knocking him in the slightest. I mean, 
I wouldn't know how to find my way to China. <laughs> and, you know, I've got sat nav. In 1495, <laughs> the Bristolian merchants petitioned Henry, saying, To the king and my sovereign lord, please it to your highness of your most noble and abundant grace, I like that, abundant, to grant unto John Cabotto, a citizen of Venice, Louis, Sebastian and Santo, his sons, who's gone back to being Louis, your gracious letters patent. Oh, so he's giving seal. it to the sons as well as the dad, not just the dad? The first one, yes. Okay. In due form. Yeah, that's what makes it slightly interesting later on. To be made according to the tenor hereafter ensuing, and they shall, during their lives, pray God for the prosperous continuance of your most noble and royal estate, long to endure. But the actual charter is lost, so we've only got that bit. But unfortunately, Henry had gone off the ball by this point, because Columbus's second voyage had not really built much on the first one, except... As we heard in the first episode, he might have brought back syphilis. But obviously that's disputed, (laughs) (laughs) as everything is. Moreover, Spain and Portugal were battling out as to who owned what. Pope Pope Alexander VI was wheeled in. Wait, Alexander VI, he was the Borgia Pope. He's a a Spaniard. Okay. So you can guess how this is going to go. Hmm. And he drew a line on the map, giving everything east of the line to Portugal and everything to the west to Spain. And this right. was called the Tordesillas line. Uh, there's some controversy as to where this line actually fell, but I'm sure we'll hear all about that in Pope Alexander's episode. You know what these popes are like this time. <laughs> money. Just give me money and I'll change my mind. I'll, t- I'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. So what are the northern areas? Well, I presume that the Spanish... Portuguese line extended north since when it got out that Henry was supporting Cabot's trip, he got a slap on the wrist from the Pope. But Henry ignored it. He was perhaps annoyed that the Pope had parcelled out the world without taking England's aspirations into account. You know, quite justifiably. I mean, quite apart from the tiny fact that the countries he was handing out like sweeties were already owned by the people living in them. Mm-hmm. It did show a certain short-sightedness to allocate the entire world to just two nations. Yeah. And anyway, and so Henry granted the letters patent to Cabot and his sons, and this gave them royal permission should they run into any Spanish or Portuguese ships. Although I'm not sure how much that use that would be, since none other than the Pope has just told him quite emphatically not to do it. So I should yeah. think the Spanish and Portuguese <laughs> could quite happily ignore anything that Henry might have said. That and you're in the middle of the ocean. Does that piece of paper really do anything for you whatsoever? I wouldn't have thought so. Who is to know? Who is to know? Uh, It also meant if Cabot's ship was attacked, it would also be considered as an attack on England and on the king, and therefore a declaration of war. But as you say, Cabot's standing on on the deck shouting, it's a declaration of war. (laughs) They're just shooting him. That's okay. We'll just sink the ship and nobody will know. (laughs) But furthermore, the king's subjects could only travel to lands Cabot had discovered with Cabot's permission. Because the letters pa- letter patent said that, that the aforesaid John and his sons, or their heirs and assigns, may subdue, occupy and possess all such towns, cities, castles and isles, I don't know whether we're expecting to find castles, that by them found. Seriously, so he's given them the authority to start war elsewhere? Yeah. What it sounds like. Just take over. Just, yeah, subdue, occupy, possess. Oh, jeez. Mm. <laughs> It also required Cabot to pay a fifth of any profits to Henry. So that's our Henry. Ah. 
It's a tight little deal because Cabot gets to fulfil his dream. The Bristol merchants get the right sale rights on any goods that could be exploited, including spices and fish. Not that it was a fishing port, really. It was mainly tr trade of other sorts. And Henry gets his pound of flesh. Not that they would have known to call it a pound of flesh at this point. Although, obviously, Cabot had been a merchant of Venice. So Cabot had the blessing of the king, and unlike explorers like Vasco da Gama and Bartholomew Diaz, who went off, did a bit of light exploring, were rewarded for their efforts, and then hung around waiting for their next commission, Cabot and Columbus had negotiated with their respected monarchs to get rights over their discoveries. However, this had its drawbacks, as both men ended up heavily in debt. But I get the impression that Cabot's not great with money anyway. I mean, he was in no. debt in yeah, Venice. Yeah, he's already run away. Yes. But anyway, happy in their ignorance of their true state of the size of the earth and the impassibility of the Americas, John Cabot, his crew and possibly his sons set off from Bristol and they'd have had to have passed down the Bristol Channel with the second highest tidal rate in the world. I thought that would get that in because our river just out the back here comes off the Bristol Channel and we've got, quite, ah. <laughs> we've got quite a tidal range where they'd have picked up a pilot to guide them out into the high seas. And so the great adventure begins. I'd be terrified. Oh, God, Personally, yes. I'd be absolutely terrified. And I'd be sick as well. I'd get terrible, terrible oh, no. sickness. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it would worn off after a month or two. But it's... Not necessarily. How many people died of seasickness during oh, that um, time? Margaret of Norway. Yes. Yep. Um, and it, an English merchant and probably spy, John Day, described the voyage to, to the Spanish court. That's why we think he was probably a spy. And he said, Cabot went with one ship. His crew confused him. He was short of food and ran into bad weather. And he decided to turn back. It's thought that the phrase, his crew confused him, might mask an outright mutiny. But mutinies were not uncommon on these voyages of discovery because the crew had to have the utmost trust in their captain. And if he didn't bring enough food... You wouldn't really trust somebody was yeah. going to let you starve. That's okay. We'll go fishing. We'll find the cod. Yes. But, well, water's, water's the main thing. Yeah, they were sailing into the unknown, and if the leader showed any sign of confusion or worry, well, the crew would quite justifiably demand to go home. So it was apparently quite lucky for Columbus that he found the Bahamas when he did, because his, his crew had been getting mutinous. So, yeah, it's, it's probably no reflection on Cabot that if his crew did mutiny. Yeah, it just makes me wonder, like, how are you, how do you not make sure you have enough food? Is that not... It might not have been that. It might have been the crew thinking, this man doesn't know where he's going oh. or something. Right. I mean, it's taken purely from the phrase, his crew confused him. <laughs> I mean... All of a sudden you discover they're just having riddle games all day. <laughs> yes, I can't do this, I'm going home. It's not known if Henry was told of this fiasco. I mean, the merchants didn't want him pulling out of the project, so they may have kept them. But anyway, by May 1497, they were ready to give it another go.
Well, this time Cabot sailed on a ship called the Matthew, named after his wife, Matea. And you can still visit it. Never, I visited it in Bristol. It's a replica, but it's still it's very beautiful. Oh, really? And, yeah, you can take trips on it, including a fish and chip trip with accompanying pirate music, which to me sounds like absolute <laughs> hell. <laughs> yeah, it really does. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> There's a picture of them all dressed up as pirates. That is a hard pass. <laughs> But it's tiny. It's only 78 foot long and uh, 20, 20 and a half foot in the beam. So it's really small. Do we know how many people were on it? Yeah, the crew of 18. Oh, that is really So not many snug. of them, but I mean, it's quite snug. I mean, yeah. I, lived on a, I lived on a canal boat. It was 70 foot long, so it wasn't that much shorter. Mind you, it was thinner. You know. How cool <laughs> is that? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's, when you see these, but I've seen... Um, Columbus's boat as well and you just look at it and you say but it's minute <laughs> it's so small oh, yeah and the sea storms yes really terrifying right this time they took a couple of heavies with them to ensure that there was no repetition of the previous trip's insubordination and a barber who presumably also acted as the ship's surgeon because otherwise that's yeah. a bit decadent isn't <laughs> yes. it yes <laughs> yeah we may not have food but you will always look good yes it's no good. there's going to be no bad hair days on this trip uh, there's no room for cargo. The plan was that they would go, they would get to Cathay, chart the route, and then when they got back, they would charter a bigger boat and fill it with all those lovely spices and gems and precious metals and uh, and the fish. You mustn't forget the original purpose of the voyage. Cabot sailed with a full set of navigational tools with quadrant and compass and mathematical tables and astrolabe, amongst other things, which were just beginning to make navigation more scientific. Right. And then we're just sort of squinting up at the, squinting up at the sky and hoping for the best. But the wind was not as favourable as he had hoped. He'd hoped for an easterly wind, obviously, but instead he was buffeted by northerlies and southerlies, which meant that his navigational skills were tested as he had to try and keep his ship on course. On 24th of June, 1497, they spotted land, which, given that they left in May, seems pretty good going. Yeah. yeah. Well, of course, unless the land turns out to be Ireland, in which case it's a disaster. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it wasn't. No. Okay, <laughs> That's pathetic. <laughs> okay. Cab Cabot called the headland he saw through the telescope Prima Terra Vista, land first sighted. But however, the area was too dangerous to land, and they carried on south until they found a harbour. Cabot went ashore and stuck a cross in the ground, along with the banner of Henry VII and the Pope, which was a bit much since they very much not had his blessing. Yeah, a bit cheeky. Yeah, and St Mark, patron saint of Venice. And there were signs that people had just been there, a trail leading into the undergrowth and a fire that had recently been put out. So Cabot and his crew played it safe and got back on the ship. He did pick up a needle used for making nets and snares for catching game, which he gave to the king on his return. But this might seem a bit cowardly, but it was probably quite sensible because when you think about it, Magellan was killed in an intertribal battle in 1521, and Captain Cook was stabbed in Hawaii in 1779. I mean, it'd be a bit of a pain to sail all that way, only to be brutally murdered the first time you step on shore. Yeah, wasn't so. Captain Cook eaten? Was he? Mm. I don't know. There's, I don't even know if it's a myth. I heard it in one of the documentaries I was watching that um, they were talking to one of the kings or queens, and they said, oh, I'm related to you. I ate Captain Cook, and I understand he's related to you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, that's a lovely introduction line. 
Yes, I mean, quite probably quite sensible. You didn't know whether these people were going to be friendly or not. So he skirted the coast for almost a month, but didn't land again. So we don't know whether he was he afraid of the natives, or they'd been bitten to pieces by the mosquitoes that apparently plagued the area, or did you just feel that his remit was charting the coastline and not risking his life blundering into potentially hostile natives? Well, he was there for fish rather than... Well, I was just going to say, Cabot did say that if they threw a bucket over the side, when they dragged it back in, it was full of cod. So he'd done his duty by those keen to cut the Icelanders out of the fishing trade. He'd mm-hmm. found the fish stocks. He went from the northernmost tip of Newfoundland to Placentia Bay. Is it Placentia or Placentia? Uh, it depends on where you are in Canada, so you can name it whatever you want. I'll say Placentia. Since he curled around the bottom of the island, he was sure that if he were to continue west, he would definitely, certainly, positively find the passage to Cathay, because well, it stands, <laughs> stands to reason. Placentia Bay is exceptionally deep, so he may have thought that he was back in the deep ocean. He didn't have enough provisions to carry on, but that was okay. He knew now exactly how to get to Cathay. It's quite nice. On the return journey, Cabot saw two large fertile islands on the starboard. One he bestowed on his Genoese barber, and the other to a Burgundian friend. <laughs> nice, you just point it out and say, you can have that. Yeah, we don't know exactly where we are, but you can no. have it. Yeah. And they took it very seriously and were very keen to get back and start ruling. Really? The new kingdoms, yeah. I don't know if they found the islands again. I mean, but anyway. It's nice, yes, it is nice just to be able to hand these things out. He was aiming for Bristol, but ended up in Brittany, because everybody ends up in Brittany. So explain this to me. They can make it all the way across and find Newfoundland, but they can't even make it back to their own country. Well, I suppose they weren't heading for Newfoundland, were they? They were just heading across. So yes, they true. hit. They hit where they hit, but yeah. coming back, obviously they were aiming for somewhere, and they must have got blown off course. So we're back to how are you going to find those islands when you go back? <laughs> yeah, when Cabot made it, did make it to Bristol, he went straight up to London to see the king. They're probably discussing how they always ended up here, ending up in Brittany. <laughs> Henry gave Cabot ten pounds in order, according to one source, that he might have a good time with it. Just imagine oh. him sort of popping it in his hands, curling his fingers round it, and saying, "Go on, buy yourself something pretty." <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Henry dubbed the place Cabot had discovered Newfoundland. So it's Henry. So Henry clever. It. Yeah. Yeah, very clever. And it shouldn't be forgotten that Cabot didn't go all that way alone. There were 18 other men with him, 18 nameless men who sailed bravely into the complete unknown and who are now entirely forgotten. How many of them returned? I, th- I think all. In that it's not really? mentioned. I don't, well, it's, it's not mentioned that anyone... They didn't hit any problems, I don't think. They didn't get okay. out so that none were killed by natives. Mm-hmm. There's no mention of storms or... But then there's not a men- not a lot of mention of much, as we'll discover. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Henry agreed to a second expedition, promising Cabot ten armed ships and all the prisoners to be sent away. Oh, yes. Yeah, the idea was that the prisoners would be put down in Newfoundland, where they could form a colony, which would become a stopping-off point between England and Cathay. What with Cathay being just around the bottom corner of Newfoundland. <laughs> So this is this is all being planned. Cabot's stature grew. He was in constant demand to tell of his travels. He was called the Great Admiral. A Venetian living in London described Cabot in a letter saying, 
that vast honour is paid to him, he dresses in silk, and the English run after him like mad people. The Spanish were not happy with Henry's newfound interest in exploration. But, no. Spain and Eng no, but Spain and England needed each other at this point. Spain wanted England to side with it in its war against France. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Henry continued to talk talks with Cabot about the second voyage, and he gave him a pension of £20. But, in true Henry style, this pension was to be paid out by the Bristol Customs. He wasn't, <laughs> his, wasn't to be his hand in his own pocket. I'm going to award you their money. <laughs> well, that's fair. I mean, John had given away lands that he didn't own. Mm. And, maybe laugh, he backdated the pension to March 1497 to make it clear that Cabot had been in the pay of England when he first made the voyage. And it sort of reminds <laughs> you of another time when he backdated events yes. to change history in his favour. And he said that <laughs> the Battle of Bosworth was the day before. <laughs> right, this is where a man called Carbonaris comes in. And he was God, a friar. That sounds like pasta sauce. It does, yes. <laughs> well, he was a friar, an important ecclesiastical administrator, the Pope's taxman, and a diplomat. And he'd been very helpful to Henry VII during the Perkin Warbeck uprising when he found himself in Exeter just as Warbeck arrived to besiege it. He then followed Warbeck to Taunton, and then he rode on to Woodstock to tell the king what was happening. And Cabot seems to have benefited from Henry's gratitude to Carbonaris, although I'm not entirely sure how. I can only assume that he paved the way with the Pope. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. Okay. And it has been proposed that Carboniris and assorted friars went with Cabot on the second voyage and settled in Newfoundland and built North America's first church. Really? Well, really? Oh, I would <laughs> love to know. Man, there are so many times I just want a yes or no answer. Well, you should have done history. I <laughs> <laughs> should have done anything else. <laughs> The next time Cabot met the king, Henry had downsized somewhat. From ten ships, it was now five. Oh, only of one of which Henry agreed to pay for. So he really should have just left right then. I got ten ships, go yeah. and get on the boats, leave, 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 yes. leave. Uh, expenses would be paid by the Bristol merchants. Henry, of course, would still get his cut as originally planned. Even though he's not giving him anything now. He's giving him permission. Oh. Cabot was so desperate to be the one who discovered Cathay that he'd have agreed to anything. You know, if he'd given him a dinghy, he'd have got in and, and <laughs> rode away, I think. All of a sudden, we're seeing him on a little coracle. <laughs> <laughs> there appears to have been some rivalry between Cabot and Columbus. It's been suggested that Columbus and Cabot originally envisaged joint venture, but it, it all went wrong. Where do um, we get these thoughts? Like, Is something written somewhere that somebody got this idea? <sighs> I, I should imagine it's taken from little snippets that the people have said and you have to extrapolate. Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, Cabot was probably unaware that his every move was being relayed back to Columbus. So the fact that Columbus has someone spying on Cabot implies that there is a certain amount of rivalry. Yeah, and that it, they did at least know of each other. Mm. Henry VII had trouble from both the Spanish and the Portuguese. He'd assured the Spanish that the English exploration wouldn't affect them since it was not to the west of the Tordesillas line. So when the Portuguese began to take notice, Henry could hardly say that the lands were not to the east of the Tordesillas line, you know, and the land did... given to Portugal by the Pope, because you know, they've got to be one or the other. Yeah, but did the Tordesillas line, I, I thought it was just Southern America. Did that include Northern America, all of Northern America as well? 
That's what I was wondering. That um, the Portuguese seem to think so at this point. Because okay. um, at this point, can they even prove that they're connected? No, but I wondered if they just thought the line just continued round, round the world. The globe. <laughs> <laughs> if you go west far enough, we now own England. <laughs> yes. yes, if we go west far enough, we get back to this, back to this <laughs> Spanish bit. Yeah. <laughs> But Henry just said he didn't accept the validity of Portuguese claims to land that they had not discovered, whatever the Pope may say. He was quite good at just ignoring the Pope, wasn't he, old Henry? Yeah, he just kept putting, giving them more money to the church as a, <laughs> forgive me. Yeah. So on February the 3rd, 1498, Cabot received his second letter patent. He was given five ships, armed and provisioned for a year. And he soon set off on his return voyage to Newfoundland and then on to Cathay. There were two spies on board, one from Spain and one, the other one was Italian. I'm not quite sure how they knew they were spies. But at one point, we know that Cabot returned to Ireland, but whether his ship was damaged or whether he stopped to dump the Spanish spy, <laughs> both both have been suggested. Did he keep the Italian spy, though? Well, I guess so. Maybe he didn't know about the Italian, but then how do we know? I don't know. A lot of this is, how do we know this? If you know, In the circumstances, it seems yeah. there's been a, quite a lot of speculation as to surrounding Mr. Cabot. A letter based on conversations with John Cabot describes his plans for the trip. Quote, He intended to keep along the coast from the place at which he touched, more and more towards the east, until he reached an island which he he calls Chipango, that's Japan, situated on the equinoctial, or equinoctial, I don't know how to pronounce it, region, that's a bit near the equator, where he believes that all the spices of the world have their origin, as well as all the jewels. Wrong on both counts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was generally assumed that precious metals and gems needed heat to develop. We have lead, tin and iron in cold, damp England. So therefore, hotter climes must have gold, gems and pearls. And we can sort of see the thinking behind it. Cold, cloudy places have grey metals and sunny places have golden, colourful metals. Yeah, I guess so. Especially when you think of the diamond mines in Africa and they're in hot places. So maybe... And technically, it is kind of true. Heat and pressure is what creates. Yes, it, it is. Except the cli- the actual climate doesn't make a lot no, of difference. No, it has nothing to do with it. <laughs> Not when it's down in the mantle. <laughs> anyway, Cabot's boat then set off from Ireland after dumping the spy or whatever he was up to, and neither he nor his ships were ever seen again. Now they may have run into bad weather, ice flows, or been wrecked off Newfoundland. Oh, they seriously were never seen they again. They weren't all together. Cabot's okay. ship was trailing behind, having stopped an island. And other sources claim that one ship did come back, bringing with it three natives. And if they're the same ones, an ambassador said he saw them three years later dressed as Englishmen and talking perfect English in a perfectly civilised way, showing that even savages can be rehabilitated. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> if Cabot's flotilla did come back to England, there's no record of its return. But then there was no records of the return of the first voyage. And all we get is the information from that John Day letter to the, special, to, to, to the Spanish court saying that he went or went wrong, he came back. So just because there's no information doesn't necessarily mean that there's not information to have. Yeah, you would think that because the king was involved, at least there would have been a note. We have given up hope of ever getting mm. income from this since he was so focused on money. Like, we need to take this off of our books. Yeah, mm. something. But... 
That Cabot may have explored the coast and returned to tell the tale is shown by a map drawn in 1500, which appears to label some places with English names rendered into Spanish, including Cavo de Inglaterra, the Cape of England. So it implies that someone English has named it. And one source I read claimed that John Cabot was still collecting his pension in 1499, after the point when he was meant to be lost at sea. But in 1501, Henry VII gave letters patent to three Englishmen and three Portuguese under similar terms to those of John Cabot, implying that he was dead by that point. Yeah, otherwise it would have been competing. Yeah. Except that he gave it to his sons as well, so... Mm, well, maybe that's a sort of job lot. Yeah. But, yeah, that was only the first first run. He didn't give it to his sons the second time round, as ah, we'll find right. out. Well, as I say, we're dealing with quite fragmentary evidence, so, I mean, we don't really know. Did he come back or not? I wish everybody at that time had a chronicler. <laughs> An asser just tr- trotting behind. Yep. <laughs> And incidentally, they wouldn't have used the words explore or exploration because they didn't enter the English language until the mid-16th century. Really? What did they Mm. call it before then? Finding, I think. Looking for (laughs) or finding, I suppose. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But don't quote me on that. I don't know for sure. (laughs) But it is an extraordinary thing. I mean, Cabot's trip to Newfoundland, where he touched down once, saw signs of life, and then got back on the boat is the reason why we can talk to each other without an interpreter. I mean, that's quite a big thing, isn't it? Okay, now I'm going to do something a little bit unorthodox, because Cabot, the subject of the episode, is dead, but I'm going to carry on because his memory lingered on. At least it didn't. And that's the point. years, it was thought that Sebastian Cabot, one of the sons, had discovered Newfoundland. John Cabot was just a footnote. Sebastian was built up to be a hero, almost a demigod, especially when England was patting itself on the back for having nabbed America and Canada for itself. Hmm. So do we know if he was on the first voyage? So it would have been... I'm coming to that. We don't. We don't. But he said he did. But he is a little liar. It was said that Sebastian had led the expeditions to the New Lands. But when you sift sift through the evidence, on whose authority do we have this information? Only Sebastian Cabot himself. And it was in the 19th century that the self-image of Sebastian that he'd built up was finally seen for what it was. And then his reputation took a nosedive. In fact, he was described as, quote, among all the treacherous intriguers and self-advertising non-entities of old time, there is no figure more disreputable than that of John Cabot's more famous son. Oh, my lanta. Yeah, that's telling him. No kidding. <laughs> but the trouble was that the information about John Cabot is so fragmentary that people have previously accepted Sebastian's account as the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But now it's not even sure that he was even on the voyages to Newfoundland that he claimed to have led. So, yeah, full marks for amphiboly for Sebastian, but unfortunately we're not doing Sebastian, we're doing John. The fact that John's sons were mentioned in the letters patent implies that they all accompanied him on the trip, but there's no mention of any of them being there. That includes Sebastian. And Sebastian even 
went so far as to claim that his father was dead before the first voyage even started. I have to say, his story changed all the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. But if that was the case, why were the letters patent mainly in John's name? Mm-hmm. And there's no mention of Sebastian in any, in any of the king's correspondence. The letters patent for the first voyage had been for John and his three sons. The one for the second was for John alone. And furthermore, it seems quite likely that Sebastian was not even on the first voyage because a map of 1544, allegedly drawn by Sebastian, appears to be a copy of a French one of 1541, complete with errors that if he had been on the trip himself, <laughs> he'd have been able to rectify. <laughs> so, oh yeah. Oh, my goodness. Mm. The historian Charles Beasley describes Sebastian Cabot in 1898 as a man who did nothing but trade upon his father's reputation, a professed cartographer without any real science, a professed discoverer without any real achievement. Oh. Yeah, and yet this man did have the trust of Henry VIII, Cardinal Wolsey, Ferdinand of Spain, Charles V of Spain, the Republic of Venice, and several other heads of state. You see, was he just a dirty great charlatan who fooled all these people? Well, maybe, is the answer it's, to that. It's possible. It sure yeah. sounds like it. Since in 1522, the livery companies of London objected to the demand by Henry VIII and Cardinal Wolsey for the equipment of an American expedition under Sebastian. So this is definitely after John had died. Declaring that they knew him to be an imposter without any real knowledge of the North, Northwest countries or passage, but just a teller of other men's tales. Wow. Mm. One voyage we do know that Sebastian undertook was to the River Plate, that's down in uh, South America, that uh, there was a great argument between Spain and Portugal as to who owned the Spice Islands, because this line keeps moving about, this tortoise line. Right. An expedition set off on April the 3rd, 1526, with Sebastian as the chief pilot. Do we know for sure that he was actually the pilot of this one? We do. Okay. <laughs> yes, we do. However, while crossing the Atlantic, Sebastian blundered into the area that most pilots strive to avoid. So becalmed, they didn't reach South America until the end of June. He punished, it's not said how, the officers whom he accused of disaffection. Having heard that there were great mineral wealths in Paraguay, he thought, oh, bugger the Spice Islands, and headed off there. And on the 28th of October, they lost a ship. See, that's why we hear about that. We don't hear about losing anybody on the other one. So it's right. it seems yeah. less likely. Nearly three years were spent hopelessly searching for gold. And then Sebastian headed back to, to Spain in November 1529 and arrived tired but happy on July 22nd, 1530, where he was promptly arrested <laughs> and charged with disobeying instruction, abusing his authority, committing violence against his officers and loss of a, sh loss of a ship. And he was sentenced to four years banishment to a Spanish penal colony in Morocco. And I just think I wouldn't want to go to a Spanish penal colony in Morocco. Neither would That's I. terrifying. But fortunately for him, Charles V pardoned him all of a sudden for all his offences and gave him his old job back of pilot major of Spain. Why? So Charles seems to have had complete faith in this man. Yeah, but Charles, how bright was Charles? I don't know. He he had faith into him right to the end. I wonder, yeah, but you wonder how, like how how could he instill that kind of confidence if so many people know he's just a liar? I don't know, but for people in Spain, I mean, that's what I wondered. I mean, it's it is strange, but then when you look at, you know, we've looked at um, Lambert Simnel and all that. I mean, you can convince people of lots of things, can't you? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. 
but it just seems odd because it's been published that he is fake mm -hmm. like it's come through so clearly through history you would think it would be even more well known at the time i suppose would he have heard what the livery companies in london were saying it's probably oh, not something that not. would be passed on to him. i don't know because sometimes things come through history that people didn't know about at the time, don't they? And we find yeah, we know more true. about it than people who were almost there. So. Yeah. Sebastian said he made many journeys following the River Plate fiasco, but none are recorded, unless you include his journey back to England to take up employment under Edward VI. Look at us, we're in the reign of Edward VI. <laughs> so for the next few years, he drew the sal salary from both Edward VI of England and Charles V of Spain. A little bit on the sneaky side. Really? Because... Edward VI didn't exactly have a lot of money. What was he being paid for by the English at that time? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, he was being paid to be a pilot in Spain, but he wasn't in Spain. He was in England, so I don't, I don't oh, know if he was being paid to do the same thing. <laughs> With the next venture in English exploration, Sebastian was definitely involved. 1553, the search for the Northeast Passage. He didn't go himself, but he was 78 by this point, so we can probably cut him some slack. And we will be covering these voyages when we do Chancellor in a later series. So I won't go into any detail, but, unusual, but as usual, the hunt was for Cathay. They didn't find it, but they did find Russia, which proved to be almost as lucrative. But an interesting aspect, I've liked this, of Sebastian's work was his, he had to make a list of instructions to those who were going on the voyage, telling them how to interact with any natives they might encounter. So we've got, um, I've messed, left out most of them, but number 30. Item, if you shall see them wearing lions or bearskins, be not afraid. Yeah, because he's obviously been to America if he thinks that there's lion skins on them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number 26, item, every nation and region is to be considered advisedly and not to provoke them with any disdain, contempt or such like, but to use them with all gentleness and courtesy. Oh, mm. that's kind of a surprising point of view. Well, I, even more surprising is number 22. Item, not to disclose to any nation the state of our religion, but to pass it over in silence, seeming to bear with such rights as the place hath, place, place hath, where you shall arrive. Which, when you think about what's going on in England at this time... Yeah, yeah. Tolerance is not exactly something that's being no. talked about. I mean, it might have been a pragmatic move. You know, nothing's going to get you killed quicker uh, by natives in interfering in their religion. But mm -hmm. yes, I mean, when you think about Edward VI, I mean, yeah. he, I'm sure this didn't come from him. No. Anyway, but then he goes and spoils it all by saying something stupid like, number 24, item, get the natives drunk if you want to know the secrets of their hearts. Oh, it started well. <laughs> when Queen Mary came to the throne, Queen Mary, uh, Charles V attempted to get Cabot back to Spain. Still complete faith. Sebastian prevaricated, mm. saying he was too ill and didn't think he'd survive the journey. He's 78. I mean, goodness. Yeah. And the last we see of him following a lot more intrigue, stirring against the French and setting up dodgy deals with the Venetians, he went to Gravesend to witness the sailing of the ship that was going to look for a lost ship from the last voyage. And he gave generous alms to the poor, telling them to pray for the crew of the ship. He then joined the banqueting and dancing, and he died on Christmas Day, 1557. Or he may have died in 1563. I don't know what causes the discrepancy in the sources, but this would take us in, into the reign of Queen Elizabeth. So um, I thought it was mm. worth mentioning just to take us to the end there, to Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've gone into such detail about him because for three centuries there was only him. 
by his own self-aggrandizement, he effectively cut his father out of history. But his reputation has had something of a, of a revision by modern historians following his demonisation by the Victorians. His undoubted skill in piloting... Well, I wouldn't say it was undoubted, but anyway. I was going to say. Really? <laughs> What's ca- the proof? And cartography. Apparently he was a very good cartographer. Was genuinely respected by important people, as was shown by Charles V's insistence he should go back to Spain. But that was not enough for him. I mean, it is hard to be the son of the man who discovered North America and then to be told, well, you're very good at drawing maps. I mean... (laughs) No, you're very good at copying maps. (laughs) But to be, yes, to have to follow in that man's footsteps who discovered another continent is not easy, as you know from famous people's kids who go off the rails, but... And also, we may be viewing Sebastian with modern eyes. I mean, travel stories were very different things at the time, and they were often filled with fantastical stuff the traveller had been told about as much as what he'd seen with his old eyes. Old eyes? His own eyes. (laughs) And it wasn't unusual to exaggerate what had been achieved. Amerigo Vespucci claimed to have undertaken the voyage in 1497-8 to that historians now don't even believe took place. Oh, that does seem to be a huge amount of barefaced lying in Tudor times. Which so it's named after somebody that may not have even been there. He didn't do that trip. I oh, don't that know. Trip. I haven't. I haven't looked into Vespucci, but yeah, it just seemed amazing how much lying there is, considering how religious they are. It just seems mm-hmm. surprising. Ah, but you can buy indulgences. You can. So why was there so little written about John Cabot's voyage at the time? which later gave Sebastian the chance to fill in all the gaps with his own supposed endeavours. John Cabot's achievement is relevant now because we see him as the reason that Canada and North America speak English, and at the time there was no reason to assume that either country would grow into the way they have. So we're reviewing his achievement entirely retrospectively. Mm-hmm. This, this dis- desire for a discovery quickly died out in England. Henry VII had been really very taken with global exploration, but his son only dreamt of military glory in Europe. Yes. He wasn't interested. At a time when Spanish and Portuguese were sailing increasing distances across the sea, acquiring knowledge of lands outside Europe, England was still using medieval geography. South America was already quite well mapped in 1530, whereas North America was pretty much a blank. Really? Uh, national interest in exploring didn't really get going in England until the northeastern trips of 1553 and the consequent Russian trade. In the early 16th century, Newfoundland was just thought of as a codfish country, you know, pretty useful, but nothing to make a song and dance about. Cabot had brought back nothing spectacular, no gold, no gem- gems, no spices. He had not even found the northwest passage to the Indies, although like Columbus, he went to his death believing he had found Asia. And it was only after his death that it was realised that this was a new land through which a passage had to be sought if he wanted to find the riches of the land of the Great Calm. And that wouldn't happen, as we said, until the opening of the Panama Canal. Cabot was just seen as another merchant, and to cap it all, he was a greasy foreigner. So that's why he wasn't, he didn't get written about quite so much. So shall we rate him? Yes. And fibbly. Well... Nothing. If it was Sebastian's episode, it would be sky high. But, I mean, whether we can give John anything for sneaking away from Venice when he was bankrupted, we don't know if he he sneaked or whether he just left. I mean, there's nothing. I thought one for leaving Venice, imagining he sneaked. I'd have to give him one, because, I mean, if he got away from Venice and they didn't obviously follow him and hound him to his death. Mm. Yeah, I'll give him a one. Yeah. Well, that's a good start. One mm-hmm. each. 
Antiperistasis. It was an interesting one. He was a merchant in Venice. He lost his money. Uh, he fell in with the English king and discovered the northern part of a new continent. He was fated initially, called the Admiral, dressed in silks and was chased by mad English people, we're told. And mm-hmm. yet as soon as he died, he disappeared completely and his scheming son took over all his achievements. Then for 300 years later, he's dis- rediscovered. It's a matter of how, do we, how much do you take into account the anti-peristasis that occurred after his death? I think I'd want to stop it at his lifetime, which was at, it sounds like, an ultimate high. I mean, he mm. was being paid by the king. He was, he was a foreign merchant that was being taken care of by the king and given ships from the king. And I think the, the way I interpret that mm-hmm. is the only reason he disappeared from history is because of a scheming son that did that after his death. Hmm. So I'd say it's actually pretty high to go from a foreigner who is broke to people following him around and claiming he was famous. Like, mm. Yeah, I was just wondering. I went into Sebastian for, just to show, really. Just mm-hmm. he did. He was he was completely persona non grata for three hundred years, and that's that's quite a thing, really, isn't it? And then to come back. Yeah, but that would almost be Betim. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, so he did. He didn't do too badly. I'm leaning towards a seven. He didn't hit the ultimate highs, but he definitely did better than what he had started with. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to go with a seven. Yeah, I think he would have, if he came back from his second voyage, and we don't know whether he did or not, he obviously didn't come back laden with gems gems from from China, Mm -hmm. um, which is what he planned to do. So he didn't reach the high that he wanted to. I'll give him a six because he didn't get to where he wanted to. Okay, so that's 13 for anti-peristasis. Martyrdom. Well, he did put himself in the most appalling danger for a belief, and even better, for an erroneous belief, which does seem a sort of martyrdom. Well, I'd argue Hmm. that it was complete martyrdom if he died on the voyage. We don't know. I'll go with a nine for the unknown. But, I mean, he did put himself in the most extreme harm's way. The Mm. number of people that died on the open ocean at that time was insane. And still is. Yeah. I'm going to go with a nine, because you have to have pretty strong beliefs, not only to take yourself, but to take others with you. Yes. I mean, I think... When we thought of martyrdom, we were thinking more of the religious aspect of it. I'm um, going to go with any belief now, because right now we're kind of before the religious. And there mm. is, we did discuss how there's political martyrdom, but this is this is just a different type of martyrdom. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I might go with an eight, because I, yeah, I agree. Okay. Yeah. So that's 17 for martyrdom. That's really high. Well, at the beginning of this episode, I asked what made Cabot different from those voyages who'd gone before him, the Vikings, Icelandic fishermen, the possible Bristol merchants. Well, I just can't quite believe that. But as far as I could ascertain, the answer really is nothing except that he had the charter from the king, giving him not only rights to exploit the land and the produce of the land, but also saying that he could subdue, occupy and possess all such towns, cities, castles and isles by them found. But they didn't. 
they didn't find any. <laughs> no. That and he didn't, it sounds like he himself didn't leave anything because the king then had to get others involved to actually make any claims. Mm. So. Yeah, I mean, it's very unlikely if he'd found a castle anyway, but uh, yeah. He left a scheming son, so I'm giving mm -hmm. him a one. Well, it's, we just don't know whether he had the chance to, to do any of that, since we don't know whether he got back or not. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's to do with how you're remembered, which is not necessarily how you should be remembered, because it's fame. And John Cabot is arguably, arguably the most famous one we've had so far. He's not True. as famous as Columbus, because everyone's heard of that, which would probably have annoyed Cabot. But there's a Cabot Trail in Cape Breton. There's a John Cabot University in Rome. Oh. In Rome? Yeah. Cabot has three statues. I've been up Cabot Tower in Bristol. And Bristol also has the Cabot Circus Shopping Centre. And now there are petitions to rid Bristol of Cabot's name since he apparently sold a slave in Crete. I don't know the truth of that or otherwise, but the fact that I mean, Bristol is already keen to get rid of the Colston connection since he was an actual slave trader. But when a city's clamouring to have your name wiped off the street signs and buildings, I mean, that's a that's quite a posterity, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. People obviously know who he is then. So while he may have had a lull for a couple hundred years, it's obviously back in a way, not necessarily in a good way, but... Yeah. Yeah, I mean this slave thing. I mean we're not we're not giving marks for morality, thankfully, otherwise you know most oh. of these people wouldn't we'll get, get any. zero. <laughs> We'd be in the negatives for a few of them later. So we're marking on interest. So whether he sold a slave mm -hmm. you know, don't want to play it down, but you know, if there were slaves to be bought and sold, sadly. I mean that was the situation at the time and the place. And they thought it was okay if mm. that was the general opinion. But I'd say he was the most famous we've had and possibly will have for quite some time in in uh, Henry VII's era. Mm-hmm. And once we get to Cromwell and I don't want to rate him too highly because he didn't... Aha! I'm going to sneak her in. Margaret Beaufort. <laughs> oh! <laughs> I mean, we rated her highly because her... Her organization is still educating people. So while people know about him... He hasn't benefited or left anything to us later. I mean, for him, it was almost, he gave us knowledge that there was something there that we already knew was there. All he did was find a route. Which is go across the water until you hit land. Yeah, which doesn't <laughs> seem that fantastic either. So I still don't. But how much is Batim fame and how much is it usefulness? I don't know. We Is didn't it? discuss that. We were just thinking, what did they leave to future generations when we mm. talked about it? And what does he leave to future generations? Not not a lot, I'd argue. I mean, yes, he's well known. But is he well known? How many people that are listening right now would have ever heard of him? Well, I don't know. Or shout out now. Yeah. No, can't hear anything. That's nobody. <laughs> <laughs> um... Uh, yeah, that's a tricky one <laughs> because, yeah. because we don't know what Batim means precisely. I mean, I was I prepared to go quite high because, well, I suppose living near Bristol, you know, it's Cabot, Cabot, Cabot. <laughs> yeah, but if you're not there, mm. nobody else has any reason to think of him. Mm. Really. I, I'll go with a four. All right, you're going very low. I am going low because although 
ultimately he may be well known, it's still for not something huge. Yeah, I think I'd... I'm going to go higher because I'm going with the fame part of it. I mean, like so many of these people, like poor Jasper, you think, yes, you've, you're famous for this thing, but I don't think you did this thing. <laughs> but then again, you think, I wouldn't have done it. That and if we're talking about fame, like fame where? I mean, yes, mm. you're talking about Bristol, but I mean, how many people would end up going in Rome seeing that statue and wondering who the heck is this person? Um, well, when we look at the pictures, yes, it might be confused. I'm I'm tempted to go for a seven because now you're making me you're making me wonder now just how many people have heard of him. I hadn't. <laughs> Haven't you? Oh. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you've read quite a lot about <laughs> and you're Canadian yeah he discovered you I mean you've got a lot to thank him for <laughs> but did he I don't know we're all over here we're focused on the fact that the Vikings discovered us mm. not John Cabot and the other thing is is we're also very much influenced by Americans because most of our TV are American channels mm-hmm we just automatically get their feed, and they're Christopher Columbus. They they do not ever mention John Cabot, I don't think. <laughs> All right, I'm going down to, well, yeah. I'm going to give him a six, I think. Okay. Yeah. That's still a ten. That's still pretty high. Yeah. Flaunt a bleeding flaunt. Yep, got the pictures I sent you. Yes, I am looking at them. So those, those, he's got at least three statues. There's the mm-hmm. one at the top is at Cape Bonavista. Do we even know if these are likenesses, though? Because well, they don't. I mean, look, look at the three of them. They're com- completely different, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, he kind of looks like Santa in the last. Yes, yes, he's got. In fact, he's wearing a longer dressing gown than he's wearing at the top one. But I like the one. Yeah. Um, the, the yeah, the two bottom ones are in Bristol. There's a nice. One that's obviously quite modern in style, where he's sitting on an anchor. Yeah. Um, I like it, but whether it's whether it looks like him, who knows? Because there are two pictures underneath. You will look. Yes. Oh, uh, the, the gentleman. Well, do you want to dis- describe him? Well, for one thing, Saga thing would love it because he's got a forked beard. He's got a forked beard. It's quite a long beard, a thick chain of, I think it's gold. And a regular Tudor cap and a Tudor haircut, so he's got that mm. just below the ear cut. Yeah. Fairly large nose. He's quite elderly in that. But did he get to that age? But you're saying he, but there's two pictures there, and the one on the left yeah. is apparently John Cabot, and the one on the right is apparently Sebastian Cabot. Really? Because those are exactly the same. I would argue they are exactly the same. They I mean, one's got picture. color and one's black and white, but that is the same. And they would make sense. John Cabot was was further back than Sebastian. They obviously didn't have color in John's day and the same <laughs> in Sebastian's day. <laughs> uh, I, I would have to argue that that is only Sebastian because, like I said, this is quite an elderly man, it looks like. It is, yeah. But, I mean, that's the, prob- that's the problem with the sources. And then the thing at the bottom, John Cabot and his sons received the charter by William Dennis Eden, 1878 to 1949. What the hell's going on in that picture? I it's... have no idea. Look at the guy on the right. Henry VII's um, sticking his 
stockinged foot in the face of presumably Cabot. Yeah. Like, kiss my foot. Cabot's sort of off to get away, really, I think. You can go, Cabot's head is blocking off two of his sons. I don't know, the little lad at the front is collecting the charter. And there's the bloke at the back who seems to be dressed for ballet. Um, doing the sort of classic pregnancy pose and putting yes. his hands on his, his back. Small of his back. Yeah. Oh, this hurts. Can we finish this? And is that supposed to be the Pope on the... I assumed it was Henry, because he, the lad at the front's got the charter to give to Cabot. You no, know, I so. mean the guy on the left. Oh, I see. Because that yeah. definitely looks like Pope regalia. And I, is that what archbishops look like at that time? Yeah, I assumed it was the archbishop rather than the Pope, because the Pope said no, didn't he? Yeah. But yes, I, I just I just put that in because I thought, well, it's a picture of John Cabot and um, it's a little <laughs> a little bit strange. I like the. Floor. And then you got those funny banners that Henry wrecks, but the guy who's holding his back, it looks like he's about to put on a COVID mask. Yes, yes, yes. The floor, I can describe that perfectly. Anybody my age that used to play Cubert on the PC when we were young. It's the Cubert platform. It's like a three-dimensional pyramid of cubes. Oh, right. Okay. Not not aware of that. But yeah. Anyway, that's that's your lot. <laughs> I mean, he has three statues at least, and probably more. Yes. But three is more than most. In fact, probably more than virtually everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it an eight because it's not hugely famous, but it is really impressive. And we yeah. don't know if it's a likeness, so I'm taking one away for us not knowing well, if that's actually a likeness. Like. If, if yeah. each of those three are completely different, completely different mm -hmm. styles, completely different people. Yes, very much so, hey? They don't get a single thing the same. No. No. Like, I would argue the trousers on the left one, the left statue, those are actual trousers. Those aren't leggings. <laughs> they didn't have those at that time. Quite sturdy boots, yeah. Yeah. No, he's a modern mariner, really, isn't he? Yeah. Um, I'm going to give him six. I'll give him two each for each of his statues, but the rest of okay. it just seems to be um, confusing rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've gone with six all along, haven't I? Pretty close. But you gave him an eight for martyrdom. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. How much has he got? Uh, total is 49. He is currently third. With Margaret yeah. Beaufort at the top so far, followed by mention. Jasper Tudor, <laughs> and then John Cabot. Well, that figures, doesn't it? I mean, the other two were were little, were young when they died. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, sorry, and, and John de la Pole. I forgot John to. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Forgettable. Um... <laughs> That's the second time. <laughs> Nobody's going to remember him. <laughs> So, we've got to ask the question. Are they too delicious or what? What do you reckon? No. No. Unfortunately, I'm going with a no. Oh, right. I was, I was, I was wavering. I was veering towards a yes because I thought, you know, he he discovered Canada, but then you live in Canada and say no, he didn't. <laughs> we so don't know. <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> It did not. The Vikings did. It's very, very prominent that the Vikings did. And if it's not the Vikings, then it was Christopher Columbus. Okay. <laughs> well, in Bristol, we say he did it. <laughs> <laughs> so 
hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it does seem. Yeah, he he went all the way all the way to Canada. But he was afraid to really be on on the shore. Maybe if he got off and actually explored a bit, we'd know him. But all he did was hmm. check the beach and run back no, to the ship. I was, I was, when I started this one, I thought, well, this is John Cabot. I mean, he's got to have it, hasn't he? I mean, at last we've broken the, this run of non, non-too delicious. <laughs> at this rate, we're going to have just two people or something at the end for a battle. It's just going to be bloody Margaret, isn't it? <laughs> No, I'm definitely voting for John D. So Margaret and John D will be the two that get. We got to get there, yeah. And they'll have they'll have to have to fight it out. But okay, well, sorry, Mr. Cabot, whichever one you are, John or Sebastian, neither of you are too delicious. Right, I've quite enjoyed this month with John Cabot, so let's hope next month is going to be. Because that's the thing when we pull these new people. We got to spend a whole month with them, haven't we? Yes, we do, which is actually a good thing. Like I said, sometimes the materials take quite a while to get to us. And also, I found the last couple of things. I thought I was ready a week or so early, mm-hmm. and then something's popped up right at the end. I suddenly think, "Oh gosh, that's interesting." I don't just mean the bloke and his aglets. I mean various <laughs> other things. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Okay, I got my box here. Okay. Okay, reaching in. Let's see what we got. Okay. Okay, this is going to be a good one. John DeVere, the 13th Earl Ah. of Oxford. I'm quite happy about that one. I'm actually going to put down a bet that I, I'm going to guess this guy gets Tudorlicious. Okay. Well, I should, I should just write all the terrible things. That he... <laughs> just totally now, Actually, it. every time he popped up, I thought, oh, yes, he's, he's going to be an interesting one because he, he never pops up when he's not doing something yeah. fascinating and extraordinary. Yeah. So that's, that one that's will be good. That's fine. That's fine. Yep. Quite happy with that. Mm-hmm. As long as I can find some information about him. So. Oh, I think you will. I found him yeah. in a bunch of the books that I was researching for everybody else. Yes, yes. He's, yeah, he's one of these... Um, every time he pops up, you think, wow. Nice. Okay. That is the end of our episode on John Cabot. We hope you have enjoyed it. And will join us for the next episode on... Edward Poynings. Thank you for listening. You can find details of the podcast and contact us on... In the meantime, let's want no discipline, make no delay. For lords, tomorrow is a busy day. Good angels guard thy battle. Live and flourish. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Sebastian said so. 